This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Brian Pearson. This is Fuck Bubble. Each episode, I'll be reading a chapter from my nonfiction manuscript, Fuck Bubble, to a close friend. Fuck Bubble is the near 20 year true story of a 1999 hookup in New York City that morphed into a deep but often turbulent friendship that got even more complicated after an unlikely encounter in the desert. It's a story of serendipity and how revisiting the past can sometimes set oneself free in the present. Weaving the personal with the historical, Fuckbubble also documents certain aspects of gay life in America from the 1990s till now. If you like Fuckbubble, please rate and subscribe. If you'd like to find out more about my writing or to support the podcast on Patreon, check out my website, brianpearson.net slash writings. Thanks. And thanks for listening to this episode of Fuckbubble. I'm Brian Pearson. Welcome to episode seven of Fuck Bubble. I'll be reading chapter seven, Tamil Pius High, from my nonfiction manuscript, Fuck Bubble, to my beloved friend, Eric, out in Los Angeles. A few quick things before we begin. Uh, the sound is a little subpar. I've been having a few issues with the platform I've been using. Hopefully that will get better, um, but it's still audible. It's just not quite what I had hoped it to be, but I think it's a really good conversation. And it's really all about, so much of it is about San Francisco, San Francisco in the 90s. Um, then Mac moved out there. So there's obviously a lot of Mac <laughs> in this chapter. Um, one last thing, Eric brought up this years ago, like in 1996, we we're out one night and he met this like really hot guy. And I told the guy, I told Eric, I'm like, this guy looks like a bird. Like, <laughs> and I, I don't think we've ever talked about, I think I called him, I think I said it a few times. Eric only made reference to this one time when we when he first met him and I was there. And as it turns out, it was this kind of like fuck bubble thing that happened in that he went on a few dates with this guy. And as it turned out, the guy was actually had a boyfriend, was cheating uh, on with Eric on the boyfriend and Eric met the boyfriend and they became really close, good friends. They became flatmates. They're still really good friends. So that's kind of this serendipitous kismet thing that I think happens where one guy can be like a portal to another guy. I think it may happen more like in the gay world, but I don't know. So that happened, but then I felt badly because it's been like 30 years. I was like, is he going to bring up this? Does he still remember that? And he did. And he mentioned it just to kind of refresh my memory. But then yesterday I was thinking about it and there had been this like super hot guy that I had seen when I had gone out to San Francisco a year before I moved there with my parents. And I went out one night on my own and I saw this like really hot guy out one night at Club Townsend. And he, then I moved to San Francisco a year later and I kept seeing him around town 
and was, would kind of flirt with him. He was a little older than me, super hot. And he made me nervous, but like after months and months and months, I was out to eat. Some friends of mine were in town from New York and Eric and I went out to dinner with them at Mecca, which was this new restaurant at the time on market street. It was totally fun. And the guy came up to our table and gave me his number. And I was like thrilled. I was like floored, ecstatic. And later that night, I said to Eric, I'm like, oh my God, this guy, like, he's so hot. Don't you think he's hot? And Eric was like, yeah, if you like rat's nest for hair. (laughs) So I thought about that and it made me smile because it made me realize we were so young. We were like 23 and I'm so glad that I had Eric, who is this I had this camaraderie with him. Like we were both coming out. We both had like these feelings, you know, it was, it was a whole adventure, but it was also this thing that was like a little heady, like coming out and being in a city like San Francisco, so young. So I'm really glad that I had that time with Eric just to be just kids, to be silly like that. And, you know, maybe we were just being like, we were both a little jealous or maybe we were just being, you know, flip or a combination. Uh, but I'm so glad that I, I had that time with Eric and it really was a foundation of a wonderful friendship that's lasted decades now. So here is my conversation and reading of Tamalpais High to Eric uh, and thank you for listening. I'm Brent Pearson. This is Fuck Bubble. That's so sweet to see that picture up there. Yeah, you know, so this is where I sit and work, and so it's it's always behind me, um, like on all of my work. Very uh, recalls, and I get plenty of compliments. Oh, good, good. My yeah. first, my first um, friend on this project was Fabiano, who I met in Rio, and was staying with when I took that picture. Yeah. So yeah, he was down there. So we were saying, I was telling you about the, um, and the whole thing with this is, I just this is like a normal conversation, and then I can it just ends up working somehow. But yeah. you, I was telling you about the what's my line. And you were talking about the queen and the gravity of your generation. Well, I'll tell you, you know, you asked the question about William and Harry. Um, I, I, I don't like follow them too much, but I did watch the Netflix, uh, like short series doc. And I had always been sympathetic to Megan and Harry uh, as in, like, let them be do their own thing, you know. Because, by the way, so like, I follow all these like royal forums. Yeah, you're a ro- you're a royalist. All these like old people who just like daggers out for them, and so I was a, always a bit sympathetic. And then I watched Wait, it. But we should you should say so you're you're like a royalist. Like when I go to your house, you have a, not portrait of the queen, but you have. I do have portraits. Of, um, so so yeah. To recap, I have always genuinely been pretty enamored with the queen and those of her generation. Um, Not through, you know, total interest in cult of personality or cult of institution, but my interest always started with jewels. So I became very fascinated with jewels and, you know, any good jewel with a good story 
story about its provenance is always going to be tied to nobility or a royal family or a monarchy, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so that's how I kind of became interested in the family itself. It's kind of through jewels. Interesting. Uh, and so, yeah, so I have tons of content here in the house. I mean, anyone who comes to this place sees books, sees like the little memorabilia. Uh, well, when she died, I, the first person I thought of was you. So I had my entire phone was blowing up with messages of condolences. That day. <laughs> I almost sent you one. I, did. I sent you a psychic hug. I was like, Oh, Eric must be, you did reach out. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> you did reach out. Uh, oh, that's, right. that's right. Okay. Yeah. And it's interesting because I had been in London in June, uh, for the platinum Jubilee. Uh, so I told Brian, it was, it was sometime, must have been April or May. I said, well, I'm going to go to London in June by myself. You told Ryan, your yeah. partner. Yeah. yeah. And I told him, like, I'm going to go by myself because I thought, you're not going to want to go do all these things with me. And I'm not going to have anyone, you know, like, drag me down. I'm going to go and see <laughs> all these things. And so he Is said, well, Jubilee? which Jubilee was this? The, the Platinum Jubilee. Platinum Jubilee, okay. 70 years, yeah. 70 years on the throne. Um, and so he went with the agreement that he was going to do what I did. And that there was, and so he did. The only thing that he didn't do is uh, I went to Sotheby's one afternoon because there was this, um, they were hosting an exhibit of amazing jewels. Um, so I went and saw that. And that's the one thing he didn't go to, which is fine because he would have been bored out of his mind. And it would have, I probably would have felt pressure to, to make my way a little bit through it faster. <clears throat> But, um, yeah, and I had a great time. So then, of course, I thought, should I? I had this friend who I've known for quite some time, but I've never actually met him in person. He lives in San Francisco. And somehow we connected over queenly things. And so we always had this joke that, you know, when the time came that she died, he and I were going to go to London together to, you know, go do all the funeral stuff. Because no one else would quite understand We'd be partners in crime, right? right? Like we'd be interested in doing the same things. And so, of course, when this happened, I reached out to him and then I said, "Well, what do you think?" Um, and I was far more into the idea than he was. He, and you had just been like several months earlier, yeah, for the jubilee. And right. so then I thought maybe I should go for the funeral. Uh, and I was actively thinking about it, and I decided against it. So now the big question then, then is, do I go for the coronation in, in May? Uh, mm. and I don't know that I will because it's going to be a I don't want to call it a far more austere um, ceremony but it's not going to be a three hour service at um, you know Westminster um, you should go though because maybe you'll get something from it that you might not expect I, I may go I mean, look, there's no reason not to be in London in May anyways. Right. It's a great time of year. Uh, so I may. But again, like, part of this is that, like, the magic doesn't seem to be there. Uh, Which is, so that goes back to what you were saying about the, the Netflix documentary. Oh, right. And Harry and Meghan and having sympathy for them. And then what I was saying about 
the show What's My Line that I started watching because my mom is here with me and it's from the 50s and 60s and it's I love it. And you said gravity. And I, that's one of the reasons. And there's this kind of glamour and mystique and civility that I like. And what you were saying about the queen and, and that generation and Margaret, uh, princess Margaret, it almost is the same thing where I can kind of like, um, what's it's, you can connect it to sort of dating and the world we live in and just everything just sort of like, right there in front of us. Well, I think it could be emblematic of life in general. I think that my experience has told me that as I move through life, the more I get to know something, like the luster starts to tarnish, like the magic goes away. Um, I was thinking about this recently over the holidays, that Christmas doesn't have that magic that it did as a kid. When in reality, the entire month of December felt like this, like work up to this crescendo of fantastical things that were all predicated on the lie of Sansa, right? The lie. Uh, <laughs> it's a lie, but it, it created some level of magic. And as you go through life, things become demystified. You crack the code, you figure it out. And things just feel a little bit less shiny and interesting because you've figured it out. Um, you know, this is like, that's why I think that I, I, I like to hold on to things. Sometimes they're, you know, there are people say things like, you know, your heroes you never want to meet because once you meet them, you realize that they're a person and they have flaws and they're assholes. And, you know, but when we can keep someone held on a pedestal, and like just keep that magic around them, it creates a sense of awe, or at least it helps us maintain that sense of awe that we might have in our head. Um, and so, you know, as it relates to the queen, you know, the closest I'd ever been to her, by the way, is probably about, you know, 100 yards. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. Um, sure. At Buckingham Palace, it was, uh, I think it was 2008, right before you got tackled. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I would have been closer if I hadn't been tackled. Uh, but I think with her, and she knew the magic and power of monarchy was never to like pull the curtain too far aside. Yeah. Uh, because you have to maintain a certain level of magic and mystique that allows people to still kind of keep the monarchy and her held up on a pedestal. And in contrast, you have someone like Charles who has, you know, had a career out of being, you know, Prince of Wales and pursuing his interests and speaking openly about it, which I think is a good thing, but you know, he has no sense of, of mystery and neither do, you know, the younger than the younger Royals. And so as all of this conflict between Harry and William are playing out. Um, it's all out there in the open. And so there's almost like a little bit too much access to, oh, yeah. to, to these details where, whereas in the past, you know, with the queen, you would look for a photo of her wearing pants and that alone would be like a huge uncover, right? It's like, how often do you get to see her wearing a pantsuit? Like never. You know, I probably have like four or five times. Yeah, I, I've seen a few photos, and it's like, you know, I stare at it, and I think about how and why is she doing this? Like, it's so out of character. 
But these are the things that I think is true in normal life, but scarcity around information and people um, still it helps to maintain a level of magic that I don't know. I think that I we think you're, exactly. I think, I mean, it, it makes me think of this story, fuck bubble, because I've certainly, there was this mystique to some degree around my Mac, who I write about and definitely Evan, who was this guy that I, you know, when you came out to see me on Long Island, I was kind of involved with him, but there was always like this mystery around him and it just pulled me in, you know? And now when, if there's, you know, with uh, somebody, when you go on grinder or something, it just seems totally devoid of that. And yeah, I mean, even though it can be frustrating to me, you know, I think there's something we like about efficiency, right. But there's also something to be said about, you know, the art of seduction, the art of writing a letter in longhand, the art of making a meal and sitting down around a table and eating it properly with the right cutlery, uh, having the right conversation, right? Mundane things that serve some purpose that you could be very utilitarian about. We create ritual around it because it creates a bit of meaning. It makes life a little bit more exciting. Um, and you know, it's, it's a bit of a burden to do things in what might be thought of as an old fashioned way, but I don't know, maybe it's, we get stuck in our own habits. And so for me, the idea of getting up every morning and either making coffee or taking a walk to get coffee may feel anachronistic versus like doing, putting a pod in and making a single cup of coffee, right? Like it's very efficient. Um, but you know, the ritual behind these things tends to go away. And that to me is part of the magic and meaning in life is having ritual around mundane things. Yeah. Oh, I absolutely agree. My grandmother was always just so satisfied with a cup of coffee, you know, I mean, just, or shrimp, you know, she just loved it. <laughs> Snow peas. Yeah. <laughs> shrimp, shrimp does everything. Yeah, no. And it's like, there's this great, Sophia, I think it's a balance because there's, there's this great finding a balance. There's this great Sophia Loren quote about aging and getting older and the necess necessity to go out and find new things, new treasures to make life interesting. I also get so high from thinking about the past and my own past and the things I've done and the people that I've met. And that to me is a source of fuel for the future somehow. And I can never like even something, you know, like a few years ago now, I think back and I'm like, Oh my God, that was just like a part of my life that is over. It's weird when, when the present sort of becomes the past, like there's that moment when, you know, two years ago, suddenly is like really in the rear view and you start to feel like a nostalgia for it or a relief, maybe depending on where you were at or both. But I think you've always had this enduring ability to tap into the past, uh, in a way that, in a way that draws in those experiences to the present day, because you've always been a storyteller, um, about people and specific specific moments. Um, 
And somehow you have this lockbox of memory. Yeah. <laughs> you to tap them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about our past. So we met, um, in 1995, I think, because so I had moved out to San Francisco and actually it goes back to, so I haven't gotten to this part in the, in this project where I write about this guy I went to high school named Clay, uh, but I'll, uh, that's in the chapters to come, but I had been out one night, uh, I'd gone to high school with him and out West and I was out in New York city, like at Roxy or something. <laughs> It's 22. I just graduated college. Uh, or yeah. And so I had this thought like of him, like I thought of him and I hadn't talked to him in a long time and I called him out of the blue and he lived down South. Uh, and I called him up and the first thing he said to me was, was like Brian Pearson. He's like, I was thinking, he told me he was thinking of me the night before too. And I was like, I got to go and see him. I'm like, I'm going to move to San Francisco so I can get down to, to Tennessee and stop in and see him, which I did. <laughs> and that's a whole other story. And I still, you know, it, that's a whole other story, but that's what kind of led me out to San Francisco. And pr also prior to, prior to going to San Francisco, my friend, Tom, who I'm still close with, uh, we had been, out one night, another night at disco 2000 in New York. And he had come down from Boston and I drove him back to Boston. This is all the same summer. Um, and that's when I met Ryan. Do you remember Ryan Clifford? Yeah. They, it was, we went out into this cafe deluxe or something in the South end. Uh, and he had gone to Emerson where I'd gone in, but we never met at Emerson. He had also just graduated Ryan and drew. And Somehow I thought you guys knew each other at Emerson. We, we met in Boston, but we had both graduated and it was like that summer that we had graduated. The summer yeah, yeah. Five. So I, I probably saw him around, but I didn't really know him. And so when I got out to San Francisco, I knew he would be there and I looked him up and he's the guy how like you were friends with him. And that's how I met you. That's how we met. Right. And you were still in school at, um, yeah, going to school in San Francisco. And I remember you were, you would stay on my sofa sometimes. Like, maybe the, <laughs> I think like the first night I met you, you, you either were going to have to go back to sec. I don't know, but you spent, spent the night there. That's right. I've, I must've been between, between places. Do you remember that apartment I had? This is the one about not Olympus. Yeah. And that's then, right. That's right. I totally remember this now. Yeah. Yeah. That was a great apartment. That was like, oh, it, was, it was like, I had the whole view of Coal Valley and it wasn't that expensive because I had this <laughs> roommate, <laughs> crazy roommate. Um, and then I was such a relief meeting you. I felt like it was so good to meet you because I think, in Boston where I came out, um, only a couple of years before it was great. It was fantastic, but it was also like a bunch of guys who'd also just come out. Right. And, you know, I'm friends with a lot of them still, but it was this totally different energy where we were learning everything really fast, like an accelerated high school experience almost with dating and everything. And there was just this kind of edge. And I don't mean like a, 
cool edge. I mean, kind of this edginess. And when I met you, you were this kind of like California guy, like same age, a little younger, handsome, and just so cool and had this chill, like restraint about you that, and the way you dressed and the way you talked and everything, it was just like, Oh, you're this cool. I just felt like it was, I had reached this kind of like, um, level where of where I wanted to be. Like I had just for a while, like after the experience of coming out and learning all these things and being comfortable with it. And then you were there and it was just someone I could, you were just fun to hang out with and we would go out and it was the, I lived in San Francisco for two years and like I went back to New York for the summer. And then, so the most, that first year was the year we hung out. And then the second year when I went back was a very different experience for me. It was like more like the tales of the city or something. And like that mythic Atlantis type of San Francisco where I hung out with Emma. Did you ever meet Emma? Uh, I don't know that I ever met Emma, but I, the name is absolutely like, like burned into my memory. Did you know about her? Emma's trans. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. And is she like Filipina or? Yeah. 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 So I have some memories, but she was always talking about mythical creatures. I think she was like this mythical creature because I don't know that I actually ever met her. And in fact, you know, oftentimes we think about friends who have their imaginary friends who are like, oh, I can't do this tonight because I'm hanging out with Emma. And like, well, I don't even know who this Emma is, but okay, great. Uh, Emma's like really cool. She knows all these great places. I'm like, all right, great. But by the way, as I'm speaking about her more, did Emma have this like really hot white boyfriend? Several. Several. Okay. Um, so Tamper, you, you missed meeting her cause the show you came to, or maybe it was my, my photography exhibition. She came later and she got out of the cab dressed to the nines. This is in New York years later, like 2015 or 2017. I forget which one. And with this super hot guy and yeah. they were like flying off to Rio the next day <laughs> or something. Or Sounds like something Emma would do. Um, and yeah, no, but maybe someday I'll meet him. You have to, I, I, I'm trying to, she comes she, she's talk about mystery. Like she's there and then she's gone for a while. And then she comes back. I saw her a few years ago in San Francisco, but she, so she's just, she, I thought she was a real woman and she was always like decked out, like super glamorous, restrained. Like she wasn't, it wasn't over the top, but, and I'd see her around. And then finally I was at universe. Remember this club? At, oh yeah. Trust me. Yeah. Very yeah. <laughs> well. <laughs> and she came up to me and she's like, I'm going to wine and dine you. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and she did. This is, so this is like the first year, which was so innocent and golden. And I, we hung out all the time and you had your guitar and you'd play like the Smiths, right? Uh, More so. Yeah. yeah. We would go out to Alamir Fault. We'd go on hike. It was the best. And then I went, I left, I went to New York and was there for the summer, came back didn't see as much, but then I met, I had this whole, all these other things happen. Met this guy, Wesley, Emma. And so she would take me, we would go out to these dinners and we always get in like this cab. Like every time we got in a cab, it was like this strangest cab driver. Like one would like play the drums on his 
steering wheel, like another, just I have all these memories. Every time I was with her, it was like, everything was kind of like exaggerated in a cool way. And then we'd go to all these restaurants. She had these parties. It was fabulous. And she would come out to the beach. So I moved out to the beach and she would come out. She knew I loved fried chicken. So she had like, she wore this like Jackie O scarf around her head with these big shades. And she'd get off the Muni like very daintily with this huge um, bucket of KFC. <laughs> and we go and eat it on the beach in the fog. And then we play hide and go seek. It was like, we were kids. <laughs> uh, I love Emma jumps out to me as that character in a novel that is kind of always fleeting in her presence yeah. but has a really strong one when she's around. Well, one of the times, last times I saw her, so I've seen her several times over the last few years and she was in New York. It was new year's and I was staying at my friends who were on a previous episode, Paulina and Mr. Marvelous is that's what we're calling. And they were away somewhere and I was going to meet up with, and I met this guy on Grinder or something and we met up for new year's and he was from South America and he wanted to go into the, see the ball drop, which I didn't want to do. <laughs> But I went with him and, and then we watched the ball drop, which was chaotic. I mean, it was just nuts. And then we were going up toward the park and Emma texted and she was nearby. So she came and we met up and within an hour, she and the guy were like gone. (laughs) (laughs) He stole the guy. (laughs) Also sounds like something an Emma of this character would do. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So anyhow, that's Emma. But that year that we met, you were in school and we would go out and what are your, what are your own? Cause part of this whole project is talking about like the history, a little bit of the history of just my friend's experiences coming out and just all that stuff. What, what do you recall about that time? Um, well, it was certainly like an era of discovery and also conflict, I think, um, as in like being in San Francisco where there was so much available was both thrilling, but thrilling in a way that I was excited, but then had shame about the excitement almost as though there was too much. And I'm thinking about this now and I probably hadn't thought about it in, in years. Um, but I had this like great level of shame about being gay, which might speak to this idea of all of a sudden being in a place where I could ostensibly be welcomed as a gay kid. Uh, I didn't necessarily like that. I almost kind of relished the idea of being an outsider. So I did find myself trying not to assimilate too easily. Uh, and that probably manifested in just the way I behaved with a number of people, the friends I made. I think that's something I, I actually gravitated toward you. One of the, re- I mean, one of the many reasons, but because you, I maybe felt the s- same and I just felt like there was this safety in you and this kind of like knowingness, shared knowingness, same experience, shared experience. Yeah. And I think that, but you know, so, so I, I kind of walked through life in a way that was both amazed by everything that there was uh, but then also it repelled me a bit. And I think that also kind of 
it showed up in a way like how we would spend our time out and about. So I do recall a night when you and I were at the cafe. Oh. And you remember when I met rock and roll? <laughs> That's right. Um, I like how we had like the patience to be at a place like that. That's so just awful. But also like I can still see it distinctly, like the different layers of rooms. Um uh, and the people around. And I remember meeting someone there. I think we were probably both meeting people there kind of randomly because that's what you did. Uh, you met people properly. Like you built up the courage to say hi to somebody or you, you felt someone's gaze on you and you know that they were going to come talk to you. And it like stirred up, you know, butterflies, all of that. So we would spend places, spend our time at places like that. But then... I think what was more exciting is that we would find what felt at the time were more underground uh, places. So, for example, in the mission, there was that party, Baby Judy. I have been all this whole time, like knowing you're going to be on the podcast. I'm like, I cannot wait to talk to Eric about fucking Baby Judy's because that to me was like that. I go ahead. I love that. So that was the that was the foil to all that was the Castro, right? The Castro were very predictable gay bars, seeing very predictable gay boys dressed in the same way that gay boys dressed. It was very Abercrombie and Fitch, right? Yeah. Baby Beauties was so very different. It was it was like it was it was the queer space of the time. I mean, and it, which by the way, San Francisco had historically been very much like a queer haven. Um, and so that felt far more exciting and thrilling um, because the mission felt as though it was like new ground, you know, versus like the well-worn paths that were all through the Castro and all of those bars. Um, this just felt far more exciting and unique. And we saw different people, um, people who look different, you know, outcasts. And I think that to the extent I felt like an outcast, even though I never looked like an outcast, by the way, uh, like it felt like you my were always, So you had like, um, I don't know that what, this, I loved your style. It was that very kind of classic 1950s, but current, like you always had like a, you looked of the time or timeless at the same time. Well, it's about to <laughs> I'm glad to hear that my efforts and uh, my appearance. Yeah, yeah. No, you had it all together. Um, I I love that. I loved like I loved discovering the mission and Dalva. Do you remember Dalva? Dalva? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. Yes. Um, and I loved getting. I also loved the Castro too at that time because for me from the East Coast it was so new, and there like the fact that it would be. I think it was the first time that I ever really lived somewhere where you might possibly be able to wear short sleeves in January, even though, you know, SF could be kind of mild and the eucalyptus and like the whole, there's something in the air there. And even the cafe, um, which I, I, that's the first time I ever heard Jamiroquai, <laughs> like Space Cowboy. Like, so I have this like sentimental feeling for it because it was like something back then. 
there you had more like distinct the East Coast, West Coast. And that's when where I discovered like kind of got a feel for the West Coast at the cafe of all places, just because I heard like, you know, and that song set me free, that kind of like acid house song. Yeah, right. Uh, popular later, but it was all kind of coming from there. Um, well, I mean, it's interesting because um, I, I I speak a little poorly of the cafe, but it's one of those like good friends who you kind of loathe and love at the same time. Right? Right. We spent a lot of time there, um, and as much as I say I loathed it, I was there quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. Do you know? I have this other memory of us, Eric. When I my I had gone down to Miami and met this guy named Chris. Uh, and then he came back to actually, no, this is a different, you met him though. We're still friends. He, and we went out to brunch. I'm confusing my memory though. What I wanted to say was another friend came and we went out and hiked to Alamere falls. Do you remember that? I do. I remember hikes there. I remember one specific hike that, we hiked out late in the afternoon, probably early evening, to see the sunset. But that meant that we were going to be hiking back. The snakes. Uh, in the dark. Yeah. And I remember we were also on shrooms, I think. Um, and I just remember all the snakes on the, <laughs> on the trail. I don't think we had a flashlight. And we certainly didn't have any iPhones to sort of... No, but what I do remember is that uh, there was moon shadow. Uh, I think I'm remembering that right. Uh, no, you are. I remember watching that sunset. So this is a hike, Palomarin Trail. And back back in the day, you could go there and not see a soul. Yeah. And then more recently, although I went there for my 47th birthday, a few days after my 47th birthday, and I had the whole, I was naked in the waterfall. Like no one else was around. A few years before that, I was there and a fucking drone flew over. So you're like out of nowhere and they're drones. But it's this beautiful, kind of longish hike along the cliffs and then into the eucalyptus groves. And then you end up at a, a tidal fall, which is a very rare kind of thing where there's a waterfall that cascades down onto the beach right yeah and we were coming back yeah we we're on something like shrooms and we were kind of entering into this last big eucalyptus grove and we we're on these high cliffs above the pacific i remember that like the sun i remember just watching it fall into the ocean like the very last tip and then dro- walking back and thinking that because of the shadows on the path that on the trail that there were snakes and we were just yeah. a little <laughs> freaked out we're a little flipped out but what were you going to say earlier about the cafe like you had a memory of us there was it a specific oh right yeah there was (laughs) this one jumps out and i don't know why it jumps out but i met this guy named mark who you i remember you pulling me aside and saying don't talk to this guy he looks like a bird (laughs) i remember i knew you were going to say that (laughs) yeah um and it turns out that he yeah, was really cute. Actually, I would, I might have. Yeah, been. he was. He was. He was really hot, but he did kind of have like a beak-like nose. Um, <laughs> I think I was trying to be funny. I hope I didn't come across as being. No, well, it didn't deter me because I actually went out on a few dates with him, including one that was shortly after we met. He and I met. It was a Valentine's date, and uh, I remember we went out to dinner. We went back to his place and we're sitting chatting with his roommate and the doorbell rings 
And he opens the door and I hear some bit of a kerfuffle. It turns out it was his boyfriend. I didn't realize he had a boyfriend. Um, And the boyfriend ended up becoming a very good friend of mine who you probably know, Mark. Mark and I lived together then shortly after that. Um, Wait, did you hear him say Mark as well? Yeah, that's right. It was two Marks. Okay. Yeah. Uh, And anyways, Mark and I, the boyfriend Mark, and I love this story because we always joke that we met like on the threshold of his boyfriend's apartment while I was on a date with him on Valentine's Day. And then Mark and I became good friends. We lived together for years and, you know, we still talked to each other. I just saw him. Yeah, I'm sure I met him. That was, would that have been when I came back like that second year when you were with Paul? You probably even stayed with us at some point. We had that house up on top of Collinwood Hill that overlooked the city. And so what happened to the other <laughs> Okay, so the other Mark, you know, I, I still hear the one I thought looked like a bird. Yeah, um, I mean, he ended up being something of a creep. I mean, <laughs> well, maybe that's what I was sensing. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that said, you know, I wasn't too offended by the fact that he had a boyfriend and I was out on a date with him and whatever. It was what it was. But I do remember distinctly meeting him that evening and being so thrilled about it because of this guy was so hot. But somehow in my mind, I thought that that was that we had met um, that night. And I know that's not the case. But I'm also, I guess what I'm trying to do is like figure out the breadcrumbs of when we actually met, you and I. Uh, and like, what were the circumstances around it? I know it had to do with Ryan, but I don't remember how and what and why and where. We may, I think we may have met simply just through Ryan at the cafe or something or and I think that was it I think he my recollection of it is that we just sort of hung out and you might have um been you may have mentioned I don't know if it was that first night or something that you were kind of going to have to drive. I don't remember drive back to Sacramento or something. And I was like, no, just stay with me. Um, and at the time I lived, yeah, right above the Castro and Coal Valley. And, uh, and yeah, so that, that's kind of, and then we just started hanging out. I don't remember. Yeah. If, I think it must've been late 95. Cause I got out there in like late night in October of 95. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. And you also met Mac. So I'll read, I'll start reading this to you in a minute, but you met Mac, but again, we talked about this a couple weeks ago or a week and a half ago, and you're not quite sure if you recall meeting him. I somehow my mind, like I'm certain of it, but I can't put a face to it. There's also like a mythology um, involved here. And but I only have met him in San Francisco. Or would I have met him in New York at any point? No, only in San Francisco. And I think that's one of the things with Mac is that he and I, like, we are friends. Like, I have friends that you know, like, just even describing how we met. It's just sort of like you know, everyone kind of, it's fluid. Everyone has kind of knows people, and it's just this 
more organic thing. And he was always sort of like in a different part of my life. And I would try to introduce him to friends. And sometimes I would meet his friends, but it didn't really always work. And I think I was really wanted him to meet you because I thought that he would like you a lot and that you guys would like each other. But I recall when we met, it felt awkward to me, like not you or, but he was kind of, it was weird seeing him with interact with somebody like you had known forever. I remember he was sitting on the floor, um, which might not be in theory, like a weird thing, but he just, he seemed awkward. And I kind of knew him as being somebody very confident and self-assured. And then to see him in that way, I just, it was surprising to me. Um, but he, I think he was really like one of the few people, you're one of the few people that friends of mine that I, he ever met. So this is a lot about, um, San Francisco. So, and he just, I hadn't seen him in a long time when that time, when, when I did introduce him to you was pro I hadn't probably seen him for three or four years after that whole, and you read the, um, summation. So that whole thing had happened at the San Remo where we'd spread my dad's ashes and then I didn't see him that long. So I had moved back to LA. I'd actually stayed with you, um, right when I was, that move was happening. Like in, um, do you remember that? That would have been like January of 2016. Oh, in Dolores. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, yeah, absolutely. I do. Because that was short. Yeah. That was a big transitionary year. year. Yeah. Yeah. So chapter seven, Tamil Pius high. Okay. So I got up to see Mac that July up to San Francisco from LA. 17 years had passed since the boiler room, a frigid New York city night still unfolding in a San Francisco, San Francisco Victorian. This time it was all in the body language, subtle, easy to ignore cues. Unlike before I had only to look away to nullify the advances. I was never flattered by the come ons mystifying and annoying was that he kept trying a barfly who wouldn't leave me alone, but also a friend who'd seen me through some of the most challenging periods of my life. A friend who had been lost to me more than once to his own apparent regret, who kept coming back for action. I suggested lunch. Mac had morphed into a sexed up popinjay, adopting a street uniform he wore daily with only slight variation of theme. Tight black leggings showed off his muscular ass and flaccid million dollar cock polished black work boots, an open chested flannel, a pair of $600 German eyeglasses, hair cropped tight scruff. Max still liked to regale with stories of being adored. The female professor who loved his mind and his means of self-expression, the men young and old gay and straight whom he had met at school or at a, at the clinic or on the Muni men who responded to his inimitable sexual aura the aura, in quotes, was Mac's incessant need for affirmation, for mind-blowing everything, for showy volca- volcanic intensity. The aura was his daring, sometimes dangerous pursuit of pleasure. The aura was his inability to detect or respect other men's boundaries when it came to anything tangential to sex. It was incomprehensible to me what Mac wanted from the bargain. He was a Sunday melting in the sun, the falcon patrolling the sky, the strutting sex doll. 
All of this was superfluous to what I saw as Mac's core being. We shared a certain lusty appetite for men, but how that appetite played out in the world was different, notable. From the moment I saw Mac lurking in the teal glow of the boiler room in 1999, I'd understood that difference. What made me respond to Mac over time was that he dove deeper than most. He translated and understood life, perhaps the lives of others less his own. He understood the world at large better than almost anyone I knew or read. He understood how absurd it all was, how that absurdity was codified codified into everyday life, small and big interactions. He was funny but poignant, sheltered but curious. His sordid tales might have been more palatable palatable if not for the chancy pseudo relationships they spawned the affair with the butch hairdresser in quotes met nude at a japantown day spa sometime around 2013 being an everyday example of his risk-taking mac began sleeping with the hairdresser first then together with the hairdresser's gun-toting husband there were three-way sleepovers both guys were heavy into meth a substance a substance like any other drug mac would never touch The couple had an adopted teenaged son. Arguments broke out. Cops called. Threatening words exchanged. Restraining orders issued. Mac was in the center, literally in the center of the men's bed, between the two of them, just as he was in the center of their perilous chemical world. It ended innocuously enough with an angry email. Who sent what? It didn't didn't seem to matter. I didn't ask. But Mac was still miffed about it all and equally apathetic. Mac told me this and other stories in the same way Martha Stewart talks about blanching asparagus, wrote factual retelling, delightful retellings. I suggested caution. He brushed off my concerns. Mac spoke often that week of his disdain for the Castro. His gay neighbors were cynical and worn, burnt out on steroids and hard drugs. He wanted out. With Mac, the act of buying A loaf of bread on Church Street had the same desperate feel of entering a bathhouse at 5 a.m. Everyone stared at his cock, couldn't help but to stare. I witnessed one man slip Mac his number beneath a bag of hot croissants. Mac enjoyed being on display as much as he enjoyed a rambling bitch session about the men he was turning on. He refused to see the irony. We roamed all over the city that week. I loved it. It was through my my brother James's untreated mental untreated illness that I had learned to contort and compartmentalize myself into almost any situation to make that situation livable, viable, a survival technique I adopted as a teenager ditched as a young adult for a life of escapism and relative sanity, then returned to by default when James came back into my life in 2011. Talking to Mac as we walked the hills of San Francisco was freeing, but I was applying a similar tactic as I had as I had regarding James, knowing our relationship had been built over a sexual sinkhole and understanding his obdurate edges, his fragile middle, I contorted myself just enough, just enough to get the best of him, to get what I needed, to vanquish the aura so that the real Mac could appear. It was hocus pocus, but it felt, it felt worth the trouble. I convinced Mac to go on an eight-mile hike in Marin, a beloved coastal trail to a tidefall. He rearranged his wardrobe for the occasion, morphing um, from...
and concupiscence, <laughs> urban hitchhiker to alpine hustler in skin tight in skin tight beige hot pants, suspenders, a feathered cap, wool socks, and boots. Halfway to the tidefall, Mac brought up the San Remo. Five years in the rear in the rear view, he wanted to go over in quotes, what actually happened, in quotes. I had been hiking the trail since I was 23 years old. It was not often that I had the opportunity. It was a regenerative and regenerative endeavor, wholly. The last thing I wanted to do was to, uh, the last thing I wanted was to talk about the San Remo. I expressed my hesitation. He claimed he needed to talk about it in depth so as to clear the air. It was important, all in quotes. I agreed to hear him out. Nothing new or cleansing was said as we walked through the eucalyptus grove sloped high above the Pacific, no one around but us. Mac's words registered as a regurgitation of faded distortions, a soft defense of the previously established and defensible. As it was before, he barely brought up my dad, offering only another vague apology not dissimilar to the one from a half decade before. I again accepted the vague apology, then I zoned out. Thoughts turned to my dad, to the day my mom and I had left him at Cavallo Point, our hotel on the Marin side of the Golden Gate, so that we could hike the Tidefall Trail. When we got back to the hotel, it was past eight. We went to the bar, sat next to the fire, drank whiskey rocks and sherry, and ate a late dinner, a foghorn blowing in the faint, faint. That was July 2009, seven years to the day from being on the Tidefall Trail with Mac, and let and less than two years before my dad died. It was part of an odyssey of a trip we took that summer in a rented Cadillac. Palm Springs to Joshua Tree, a summer torrent as we drove the back roads to the Mojave ghost towns to Las Vegas. The air fragrant with sage. Death Valley at 115 degrees. Yosemite the very same day at 65 degrees. Cool and gray San Francisco and Marin. A day spent wandering Napa and Sonoma valleys down the coastline through Carmel and Big Sur, back into the heat dome of Southern California, where I was living in Highland Park, a day, a day trip up, a day trip to the Getty, a night at the bowl, Abbot Kinney for a send off dinner, my parents on a high when I dropped them at LAX, at LAX, heading back to the sullen steam of Florida, but beaming. The 2009 California Odyssey was 15 years after our 1994 visit to San Francisco when I was 22 years old. I flew in from school in Boston, my parents from New Jersey. We went to Yosemite, stayed at the Wawona. Wawona. Back in SF, we had dinner at a steakhouse south of Market. My mother and I had quarreled that morning about where to eat breakfast, but at dinner we laughed. We were staying at separate hotels. At night, I went to Club Townsend. It was at Club Townsend that I caught the gl- a glimpse of a stunning man I would go on several dates with a year or so later after I had graduated Emerson, moved to San Francisco, and first hiked the Tidefall Trail. Our 1994 San Francisco visit was predated by our 1985 trip, a three-day stopover on our way back to the East Coast from Hawaii. I was 13. My parents had hired someone, to, somebody to stay with James, 16 and shakier and more restive by the day, but refusing to go with us on a holiday. His refusal registered as a slow-motion shock, something I had to learn to accept over the course of the months leading up to our departure. The shock was knowing what his absence would portend. It was the oxygen mask dropping. It was a shock that I would need to reckon with that 
that which had already been lost to its fast deteriorating mental state, a map of the world redrawn, an early education in contortion and compartmentalization and optimism. We had a flawless time on that trip. It was imperative that we did. My mom and I went to Chinatown for dinner. She took me to Gump's. My father took photographs of the Blue Angels flying in formation over the bay. I was glad when my parents left me alone at our on our last night so that I could watch so that I could secretly watch pay-per-view porn on the hotel room TV. In 1977 or 1978, my father flew to San Francisco for a conference on a United 747. We saw him off at Newark Airport. I was about six. I stood behind the floor-to-ceiling windows, awe-inspired by the size of the jet. He stayed at the Sir Francis Drake. He brought me back a toy cable car, which I still have in a box. My mother stayed at the Sir Francis in, 19, in this, at, my mother stayed at the St. Francis in 1964 when she went to San Francisco from New York for a library conference eight years before I was born. It, it first felt like a gut punch when Mac brought up the San Remo on the hike, but it didn't end up mattering. Not really. The San Remo could not overshadow that August 2011 morning on Lake Ontario, could not overshadow our trips as a family or the refuge those trips provided when our lives took one too many unexpected turns. The mist coming in through the eucalyptus on the way back from the tidefall was the covenant of California. The mist represented the absorption of shock into the cool scented air. The loosening of limbs, the hidden spring marked on the redrawn map. As Max spoke, I could only breathe in and breathe out the radiant currents of air and think of these other golden things of halcyon California days and nights. It occurred to me as we got closer to the car that minus a few out-of-touch cousins, Max's family had consisted solely of his mother, an aunt, and a single set of grandparents, all gone for years if I was only listening at half volume by Hike's End, this is what I heard him say. Returning to San Francisco at dusk on the high twisting road out of Stinson, Mac picked up on a conversation from, from the previous day. The story of a guy with whom he had been involved for the better part of two years, an out-of-towner from the Mountain West, a guy named Gunner. Mac had met Gunner online during that long period of time when we were hardly in touch. Another debauched love story, I thought. Another story I could only hear from Mac. Hardly a butch hairdresser addicted to Crystal, Gunner was a closeted family man who would visit SF on business from Cheyenne, Wyoming. He was married to an accomplished woman, a scholar, with whom he had kids. Apparently, the wife knew nothing of Gunner's attraction to men or his acting out on it. Mac and Gunner met face-to-face for the first time in a hotel room. They, began, they became emotionally entangled. One more than one more than the other, as Mac told it, he began encouraging Gunner to be more honest about his sexuality. He suggested Gunner come out to his wife first, thinking this might lead somewhere specifically to a life with Mac. Gunner told his wife he was gay, shocked and devastated. She insisted upon meeting Mac, whom she deemed the other woman. Mac reluctantly agreed to the meeting, one he described to me as we veered onto the one o one that night as awkward. No shit, I said. By the time Mac met the wife, he had stopped being romantically interested in her husband. Gunner gives sloppy blowjobs, Mac hissed. His breath stinks, too. He's a lousy communicator. He's needy. 
As I saw it, Gunner's life was another drama Mac had inserted himself into and then walked away from once things got too real or when Mac got bored. It was hard not to draw parallels between myself and this formerly straight businessman from Cheyenne. The difference being that when Mac pulled the same sort of shit on me in 1999, I was 26 and already out. I was sort of pissed and a little sad, but had no problem walking away. Walking away was empowering. Mac spoke often of Gunner during the last few days of my stay, mostly out of dread. Gunner would be arriving in San Francisco the same day I was to leave to go back to LA. Gunner would be staying with Mac, who suggested I stick around to meet him. Perhaps to entice me, he played YouTube videos of Gunner, a successful entrepreneurial, environmental, industrial entrepreneur, a successful environmental industry entrepreneur, giving talks at conferences and being interviewed by green news organizations. He was ruggedly handsome, burly, identical in age to Mac, 52 to my 43. Like Mac, Gunner possessed a gravelly, commanding voice. I told Mac that while I thought Gunner seemed like an interesting and handsome guy, I had no interest in meeting him, and that I needed to get back to L.A. I took off only hours before Gunner arrived at Mac's front door. Mac had told me that he was planning to cut things off with Gunner during his visit. That didn't happen. They slept together, but as intense and passionate as Matt claimed the several days of sex to be, he also said that he refused to kiss Gunner even once. This may have been confusing for Gunner, separated from his wife and kids and full of expectation for all people, Mac. So that's the, um, the, the chapter. Um, and you know, reading it and reading it to you, and maybe you not knowing the story, it seems to me just coming as it's coming out of my mouth, harsh <laughs> describing him. Uh, I don't know that it feels harsh on its face. I think it seems like a fair telling of your experience. I tend to have an image already conjured in my head of, of Mac though. Um, and it's it's very much in line what you described with with my image, uh, and it's not an image of a person per se, but an image of a persona or an archetype of a person. Mm-hmm. Right. So I wouldn't say harsh. It sounds like it's fair. Is my okay? Well, you know, good. It's meant to be. Um, I had very complicated feelings toward. Mac and knowing him had a lot of different, um, sides to it. Uh, I, I came about, I don't know if I've mentioned this yet, like writing this, I was actually all this crazy stuff had happened because a bunch of crazy stuff is about to happen in the rest of the story. Um, and it was all just kind of happening. And I was at, uh, a party in Venice and I sat next to a woman and started talking to her, was really having a conversation with her. And, someone brought up some kind of triangle thing that had happened. And I brought up Mac and this thing that had happened to me. And the woman next to me was like, Oh, you should be on my podcast. And and it turned out she was this best-selling author with the pot, with the podcast. And she wanted me to tell this story. And I was like, I'm not, I don't, I don't, I'm like, if anything, let me, I'll write about this first. And I thought it would be like, like a broke back mountain type of story. <laughs> like super short and like a totally fictionalized and, you know, just very sparse of the West. And 
I started writing it in Highland Park when I was down, you know, living in Pasadena, like in 2017, 2018. I wrote it, most of it at this coffee shop down there. And it ended up being this and just very, you know, a, totally not like not fictionalized. I've, I've given everyone different names and even locations to professions um, to some degree. But so it's a very kind of honest retelling and it's very kind of like what I was feeling, at, but I'm trying to be fair. And I, the, the thing is, it's like, I really talking about, you know, earlier about putting people up on a pedestal and I really had Mac up on a pedestal for a long time and he would fall off and I'd put him back up there. It was like this thing I was doing. But does not, the thing that jumps up to me is Mac seems to have, I think we all to some extent have a superpower. Uh, mm. And my, what I gather is that Mac's superpower is his ability to seduce in one way or another. It says it's the power of seduction, um, which seems pretty telling based on the way you describe him in other ways. This idea of controlling his surroundings, uh, controlling uh, and maintaining like his, his re his hands on those within his reach to whom, for whom they provide a reflection of his own seductive powers, right? So like mirrors that are people in his orbit that relay back to him his, his conquests, his uh, ability, right? That's what keeps jumping out to me about Mac in this sense of overwhelming sense of like control, right? As in not, not, not control, but controlling the narrative of his life and the script for those who are in it at any point in time, right? I get the sense that he doesn't like anyone to go off script that doesn't. Oh, if you do, I mean, you're describing him and the persona so to a T. And if you do go off script, it's like everything spins out of control. And that's when he would, this, this other version of him would come out, not the wonderful friend, but the angry guy, you know, that was vindictive and you didn't know what to expect. And so, and everything had so much of his life was in his, his sense of himself was defined by his conquests. Um, and having that seductive, that, that prowess and being like the best at it. Um, and you know, you can't maintain that. It's like also what you're talking about earlier about things losing their luster. And he, you know, it's like a certain point, I think you just have to, it's wise to sort of find new things like Sophia Loren and not ha like when you're a young man and you're 25 and you're, you know, like you're at the cafe <laughs> and you have that. And we're fortunate enough to live in that world that isn't so isn't here as much anymore. But when you'd be in a bar and you'd see somebody and you get butterflies, all that yeah. stuff. I don't think he had that. He came out later for a number of reasons, which are all valid. I understand all of them. He missed his whole twenties dating. He wasn't dating women. So all that stuff, like I was saying earlier, how by the time I had met you, I had been through a lot of things with my friends in Boston where we were learning how to treat each other. Um, and I was still learning that with, with you, you know, when I met you and it, it went on, you know, but by the time I had met Mac, I was, 
26 and I had figured some things out and I don't think he ever got those things. He has, he has like the spirit of a very young man who needs to be the center of attention. Yeah. I, I, what I gather about him is that, you know, there is, there sounds as though there's stunted development uh, because the behavior that you describe of a 52 year old uh, and his interactions with Gunner feels a little bit more emblematic of someone who's learning how to harness the power that a 24 year old might have. Yeah. Right. Uh, And it doesn't seem to be one that is settled into grace and one that's settled into working through nuance than through like blunt force it's also energy archetype that I think so many of us see in others, right? I don't think it's a unique one in the gay in the gay universe, right? Um, those where, and, and frankly, you know, it'd be probably unfair to say it's more prevalent in the gay the gay universe. I think we see it across the board, but it's a very telling archetype of a person when we see it, we know it. And if you've ever experienced it, then I think most people uh, know to avoid it. Right. Or in some cases, you're drawn towards it because that's part of the seductive process. Well, I think I was I was initially drawn toward it, and then I kind of knew though from the very beginning that this was an issue. This was something. There was something about him that radiated um, for me. Caught like beware, and yet I still kind of went with it. Like I went into it, uh, and it was good. And then, but then it got, I I mean, this is like the very early chapters where he started doing things and pulling in other people where I was like, I'm out of here. And then years went by and he kind of came out of nowhere and he was back again. And it was like a whole different set of circumstances. Um, as if so many of us are not drawn towards danger and we touch the things that say, do not touch. Right. Yeah. Very clear and apparent. Yeah. Uh, guilty. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you seem to have much more, you seem to be able to walk the line between all of those things. Like being, I mean, you have a very kind of, you have a innate tranquility and seductive thing to you, but you're also grounded. I mean, and you have relationships and you have, you've seemed like you've had just a nice flowing like when i think of somebody who is in charge of their emotions and yet it has a openness to things happening it would be you um that's a, a very affirming thing because the cynic in me would say oh eric you're just far too controlling in terms of you know controlling your emotions controlling what folks know right so uh, so I guess my reaction to that is thank you. Uh, it's also one that it takes work, and it's also an interesting thing. It's uh, it's interesting because I think that by design, I have intentionally tried not to be like certain people in my life who are emotional and probably a bit more uh, apt to react than to sit quietly. Um, Tell me, though, do you know what ever happened to Baby Judy's? Like that's... Um, so here's what I do remember. There was a DJ called Dina Davenport, 
uh, and it was her party. Uh, the the party itself was at a bar on Valencia and 16th called Casanova. Right. Um, and I don't know what all happened, but I do remember over the years in San Francisco seeing Dina Davenport's name show up from time to time, you know, new party by Dina Davenport. Like you would see her name. And then because I lived not too far from there in the last time I lived in San Francisco, like I walked past Casanova all the time. Um, so it was this like weird mythical place that was, you know, so far back in early gay adulthood that then just became this place that I walked past on a daily basis. Do you, do you remember liquid? Yeah. Liquid was, um, on like 16th street. Right. Yeah. And that was like a Tuesday night party. Oh, Monday night. It was a Monday night party. Um, I, never, I don't think I ever saw, I used to go there all the time. Like back in, I think it was 97, like the summer of 97 spring. It was, that was my favorite club. One of my favorite clubs of all time. Yeah. That liquid drew a crowd that was very specific. I feel. Um, and it was like a mixed crowd of like gay and straight folks who were, I want to say, like, I don't know even like how you would characterize the music now. Like, I think that there were like some liquid nights that were very much like drum and bass. Um, I think there were other, like, it was all EDM, but kind of like to varying degrees. And maybe it was even house, but whatever the case. Kind of, I mean, I think it was a mostly house, maybe some drum and bass. And I always remember the music being really good. Um, and I always thought the crowd was like a kind of a hot crowd. I don't know. Like in the dancing, I mean, it was small. It was so small. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I remember my friend, Paul Dion would go there a lot. And I remember thinking that he had good taste because he went there and it gave him like some like credibility of being cool because it was, yeah, a Monday night party. That's what I was living like, in lower hate around that. I don't know if I saw you that much around then. That was, I was like, had gone from the beach and was hanging out with these, my housemates a lot. And there's this girl, a couple of girls and guys, and we would go there every Monday and drink um, pear cider and smoke club. (laughs) And then we'd go back and like get in the bathtub together. (laughs) I love this. Like this sounds like a story. It was so, it was so great. I miss, I miss all of that. Where in the mission were you living? I don't remember. Uh, I never lived in the mission. Oh, not the mission. I'm sorry. Lower Hay. Oh, I lived between Oak and Fell on um, Fillmore. I still feel like whenever I go back, I'm, I feel like I'm home, you know? Do you feel that way in San Francisco in a good way? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You don't. No, I, I, I love San Francisco for so long. And now anytime I'm there, I just kind of get overwhelmed with this sense of like everything feels so tentative. Like the entire city feels tentative to me. Um, what do you mean? Like, like I'm not sure of itself or something. Um, it just feels as though there's like a certain sense of, um, there's this interregnum between being something and then, like not quite being there. And like, you see it on the streets, like homelessness, so much homelessness there. But then there's also just somehow I can't 
when I'm in San Francisco, the light feels like it's casting long shadows in a way that's kind of that weird light between being daytime and nighttime and not in a pretty way, but in a way that kind of says the party's over. Oh no. <laughs> feels ominous or something. Yeah. It's not like, it's not, it's not the gloaming that kind of beautiful sense of things. It's far more like, you know, it's the, it's the end of something really? as a over, not in a loop, but in a, in a linear finite. I remember when, when I was visiting you once and I forget how this was probably within the last 10 years and San Francisco was already changing a lot. And you were like, because people were sort of there, they were, there's taking issue with that change. And you were very kind of open to, you're like, everything changes everything. And probably that change has come to pass. And it's everything, what you're speaking of, I think is kind of prevalent in a lot of different cities and a lot of different, especially San Francisco. Yeah. I feel like the core of San Francisco is, is still there. I know what you mean. Um, but the thing like that magic, the Paris of the West is still there. It's just kind of been invaded um, by not by homeless people. I don't mean it like that. I mean, by, by outside forces that are there for maybe reasons that like didn't different from like why we all were there. We were there for, for magic. I thought. Yeah. Well, you know, this also speaks to a couple of things. There are like so many variables that are evolving and changing. The first is going back to the whole point of things lose their luster. They change. Like the magic goes away because you learn too much. You get to know something too intimately in a case in a way that, you know, the mystery is no longer there. Also, we're different people. And, you know, like a bohemian lifestyle oftentimes, you know, requires a certain level of struggle. And, you know, and so when you're like a kid in your 20s, you know, there's typically an inherent struggle involved, which is I don't have all the means to do everything that I would want to do. You know, I'm going to live with, you know, two or three other roommates. Yeah, or you know, five. Right, you know, there's all of that that is part of the process. And that's just not the case anymore, right? So, you know, let's assume San Francisco stayed static and never changed in terms of just the way, like, its vibe, its feel, kind of the whole on about it. Um, you know, as individuals, we've changed, and all of a sudden it feels like a different, you know, sandbox. Um, so, I don't know. I, I think that San Francisco has a certain magic about it. I think that it does both in, like, our own individual stories, but as a big kind of, you know, big, broad perspective about San Francisco. It's about as far west as you can go. Yeah. Um, and there's something to be said about this idea of discovery um, and expansiveness in a westward fashion. And San Francisco is where you end up. The hope in life would be that I rediscover San Francisco in a way that allows me to see things through a little bit of a different lens that I can appreciate it and share it for trauma of San Francisco versus just the beauty of, of it. And you have to go back and you, you can never, 
go back. You never want to go back to where you were, you know, right. even if where you were was the best. And I, if I go back to San Francisco or if I go anywhere that I love, like I go out to the East end of Long Island, where is another place I always feel at home. I always know before I go there, I always think about it where I, where I've been since I've been there last. And, you know, you always want to kind of keep things moving. Um, and then, connect with the city where it's at, but also try to see through to its core, like people, you know, it's the whole thing you have to do in life. I think you just have to kind of, you're kind of always sort of um, wanting to look at things with fresh eyes, but I think we, this has been really good. And you've, you have such insight, Eric, like to everything. And even with Mac, like only having met him once, just the way you, picked up on him and everything. It's just so precise. Uh, now I'm like, I'm dying at some point for you to find a photo. Now, so that, <laughs> I'll find mm-hmm. one. Yeah. I would love to find one from like when I met him. Um, right. But I'm sure I have some, I probably have like a dick pic of his. <laughs> I'm sure he did. You send me these things like all the time. I'm like, stop sending me fucking pictures. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So all right. This has been so nice. Yeah, it was great. It's great to see you. And um, let me know about, I'll talk to you before then and I'll keep you updated and all. Well, let's catch up in general. Uh, that'd be nice. Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that more frequently. I, I love talking yeah. to you and seeing what you're thinking and everything. Um, okay, well, enjoy the rest of your day. All right, Brian. All right, I'll talk all to right. you soon. There's something about talking with Eric or hanging out with Eric that has always made me feel as if I'm on an island in the tropics, deep. That the dusk is rolling in, it's hot. There's a soft, subtle breeze. It's a feeling of emancipation or levity, tranquility, physically, mentally, intellectually. Uh, I'm just always so refreshed after talking to him steady and our friendship has been steady i'm just grateful that we got to as i mentioned at the beginning of this episode share that wondrous heady time in san francisco in that wondrous city uh so thank you eric one thing he said that kind of stood out uh after and i kept thinking about after our conversation was about san francisco and like it being the end and he feels like this sense of it coming to a finality as a city, which I get, I don't quite agree with that. I don't feel the same. I, but I understand what he's saying. And I think for me, my interpretation of that, the feeling that I get from, you know, not just San Francisco, but New York city for years is that it's just a loss of habitat for the artists, for people like Mac, for people like ham and eggs, maybe for people like myself, once upon a time, you could gather there. Artists need that. Uh, James Baldwin talks about that funny terrible thing that all artists have it kind of sets them apart uh, and they serve an integral role in society and when you don't have if they don't have that ability to live and um, do the thing that they're supposed to do it's like a body shutting down and that's what i think you see in our cities and our culture in a lot of different ways and corporate entertainment um, that i don't think you'd get a trump for president uh, if he wasn't filling some horrific void, there's the, 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 um, 
lecture James Baldwin gave, uh, gave when he talks about that funny, terrible thing uh, that all artists have uh, and that their job is to lighten others' darkness is from uh, 1962. He gave it at the community church in New York City. And it's definitely worth looking up uh, online on Google uh, or wherever and reading it or listening to it. There are audio, audio versions of the lecture as well. Uh, that's it for now. I, I am Brian Pearson. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Fuck Bubble. Next episode is Chapter 8, Mesa. Uh, it's kind of the moment when I think that everything really changes when things get strange and um, everything with Mac changes and serendipity comes in with the clouds over Utah uh, at a calamitous moment. Um, and it's probably that moment that really sparked me months later to, uh, to think about writing a manuscript or writing even a short story, as I was talking about earlier with Eric, and that became fuck bubble. So things are about to shift. Um, that's next episode. I'm not sure, uh, who I will be reading it to because I've been shuffling things around, but I'm definitely excited to, uh, to read that chapter. Um, Again, thank you, Eric. Thank you to Danny Vitale, whose music you hear at the beginning of each episode. And uh, if you'd like to find out more about my writing, as always, or support the podcast via Patreon, uh, please check out my website, brianpearson.net slash writings. Thank you very much. Thanks again for listening. I will talk to you next time on Fuck Bubble. Thanks. Bye.